The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Last week we took up the, the next following section in the book of Deuteronomy in which Moses is dividing up the power that up till this point in history has been mostly concentrated in himself. Now we read in chapter 1 of Deuteronomy how he had earlier begun to break things up a little bit, but still in, in a lot of ways everything that was related to legal power, everything that was related to governing power, everything that was related to hearing from the Lord or, or intervening with him, most all of that in one way or another traced itself back to Moses. He was, he was the man. But he's about to die. And the people are going to cross the Jordan River and go into their future. They're going to go into the promised land and, and receive it and live in it without him. And so what Moses is doing under the direction of God here in chapters 16, 17, and 18 is kind of divvying this stuff up. Setting up structures and systems. Last week, we saw him sketching out... Uh, a rough plan about how civil law would be implemented amongst the people. How God's righteousness and justice, remember that was the key theme, how His righteousness and justice would be pressed into the people. Now, he's setting up court systems there and judges and whatnot. But his, his point was that He wants righteousness and justice pressed into the people to mark them. And this week... The subject he turns to is, is setting up some structure for the subject of rule, kingship, authority amongst the people of God. And as we come to that, similarly to how we looked at this last week, we, we need to be careful about a couple of things because there are a couple of ways that these things kind of stretch us. And I've experienced all of them this week, sometimes as I've interacted with other people who have been talking about how these things are stretching them in, in ways. We, we have to keep in mind that we are not building a country. So where we look at civil law in, in the Old Testament here, the, the giving of here's how your government will work, we're not setting up a, a nation. We in the New Covenant are a people that live in every country. We live all across the globe underneath of all kinds of kings and presidents and parliaments and dictators and all kinds of different stuff. So the countries in which we live set up the civil structure. We need to keep that in mind. That being said, we, we also recognize that we are still in a kingdom, though, in the kingdom of God. And he has set up systems for, some structures for authority within his people. Which leads us to another tension that we have to balance out. We must not be, we, at the end of last week we talked, we must be very careful to not cast our hope onto systems and structures. We, we cannot look at this and say, if I can parse this out just exactly right and get the right system set up, then everything will work out fine. It won't. Ultimately, we have to trace our hope back to God and see the system and the structure or whatever that He gives us as His gracious expression of order and, and a helping hand to us, to give guidance to us. If He leaves us in chaos, that's no help. So we implement systems and structures, not unlike how we as parents, if you're a parent, we as parents deal with kids. We don't believe that systems and structures will make godly children. Nor do we throw them all out and say, good luck. 
both the structure while aiming at the heart. A heart that hopes in God. And that made possible by a system or a structure. Both of those things are what God's going to show us today. Again, I think, in this piece of His Torah, His instruction to us. So we come at this today looking, not hoping in a structure, but looking at what kind of structure has He set up for authority within His people. What, what pleases Him? How can that be helpful to us? We come with those kinds of questions to Deuteronomy chapter 17. We look at verses 14 to 20 where he talks about a king. The subject of a king in Israel. Let me read the passage then we'll pass back through it to make sure that we understand what he's saying here and make a couple of observations. Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it, And dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. That he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Deuteronomy 17. This passage is the only section in the law that deals with the idea of king. So we can't say that God drives this home by repetition or that he has emphasized it by putting it in a place of prominence like first or last or something. He only mentions it once, so it's a very weak mandate. And in fact, if you read closely, it's not a mandate at all. It's presented in the form of permission. If there comes a time in the future when you come into the land and you occupy it and you say we want a king, you can do that. It's permission. A king is okay in God's eyes. Which probably immediately causes a little bit of contrast in some of us, a little bit of conflict. Those of us who know 1 Samuel chapter 8 think, what? Because if you know 1 Samuel chapter 8, That's the passage that immediately precedes the anointing of Israel's first king, King Saul. And in that chapter, clearly the idea of king is a negative one in God's eyes. Samuel views it as negative, takes it to God. God views it as negative. And yet here in Deuteronomy, he acknowledges that permissible and even useful. What's going on there? How do we resolve that? Is the idea of a king a good one or a bad one? Well, to answer that and to shape how we look at our passage this morning, we also need to consider the book of Judges. 
in addition to Deuteronomy in 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'm not sure how many of us are familiar with Judges, but it covers the period that chronologically immediately precedes the period in 1 Samuel. It's right before it in time. And as you work through the book of Judges, these judges are kind of like local temporary rulers that arise when the need comes, and they kind of defend the nation and restore some sense of righteousness, and then they die and the nation declines. And then God raises up another temporary ruler judge, and things go up, and then they go down again, and back and forth. But the cycle keeps getting worse and worse and worse. It goes lower and never rises quite as high. It goes lower still and never rises quite as high as the previous time. Such that by the end of the book of Judges, you're reading about alarming atrocities going on in the promised land of rest, committed by the people of God. And you begin to bump into this repeated phrase four times. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And twice, including the very last sentence of the book of Judges, intended to underline it, in those days, there was no king in Israel and people did what was right in their own eyes. God especially intending a powerful summary sentence to strike us, especially if you've been reading through and you've been reading what it was that people deemed right in their own eyes. Murdering so-and-so and dismembering this person and waging war on brothers over here, and etc., etc. They did what was right in their own eyes because there wasn't a king. You're supposed to conclude at the end of Judges, holy smokes, they need a king. This judge's thing is not working at all. They need a king right now. And then you move to 1 Samuel, and it doesn't work out very well. You've got to put these things together here. How does that happen? That it's they need a king? That's a bad idea. The answer, I think, is found in 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, and you can jot that down and look at it later. That's what's going to bring us back to our passage in Deuteronomy. The people ask Samuel for a king, and he doesn't like it. Goes to God and, and God says, go along with what they say, Samuel, because they are not rejecting you. They are rejecting me as king over them. As they have since the day they came out of Egypt. The problem is, the problem that arises there is that they weren't seeking a Deuteronomy 17 type of king. They were seeking a king instead of God type of king. It's possible that they would see God as the king and an authority figure under him who will help in leadership and implementing of God's reign. But they're not seeing it like that. It's one or the other in their eyes. And so they move God off the side and say, give us a king like all the nations all around us, a king who will go out and fight for us. Who delivered them into the land? Who fought for them? God. No, we don't want him anymore. Give us a king who will fight for us, who will save us, who is strong politically and militarily. That's the kind of king we want. We don't want God. That's the problem of 1 Samuel. But it's not necessarily the problem with a king per se. It's possible that there would be an under-shepherd beneath the shepherd, and that would be a good and okay, fine system. And that's what God is talking about in Deuteronomy chapter 17. So with that background, let's look at the text. 
Verse 14 in Deuteronomy, it says, The time may come when you enter the land. The Lord your God is going to give you this land, emphasizing I'm the one, I'm leader, I'm the one doing this. You may enter the land and you may live there and dwell there. And you may come a time when you'll say, you know, I think we need to set up a king over us like all the surrounding nations have, which could be 1 Samuel 8 treason. Or it could be judges reality. You know, the anarchy of judges must stop. We need a king. Which is it going to be? Well, we're not sure. Have to see. But it could be that you'd want to set up a king. And if you do, you may do that. You may set up the one that I choose. The one that the Lord God chooses. Same phrasing as the Lord who chose the place where his name would dwell in Jerusalem. The one who chose Abraham to be his people and the people after him to be his people. God's going to choose the one who would be a king and then the people will set him up and, and enthrone him and anoint him as the ruler. So if you want to do that, that's okay. Pick the one that I select. And then what verses 15 to 20 do is spell out what that king is going to look like. The shape is character. It's not a job description. It doesn't read like a, here are the, the specific things that he can do in his rule. It's more like, what is he about? What's he like, this king? Verse 15 says, you can do it. You can pick a king. And then, verse 16, here's some things he cannot do. Three prohibitions. He cannot acquire many horses, which is a building block of military power. Everybody could get a man and a spear or a man and a sword, but if you had horses, you could have cavalry and chariots, and that was strength. He cannot acquire many horses. He's deliberately hamstringing his army. And he cannot acquire many wives. Wives were not acquired back then for for love or for beauty. You would acquire wives for politics. To marry into this kingdom and marry into that family. And you form connections and, and alliances and that builds your power. You cannot acquire many lives, wives because they might turn his heart away. When you marry all of these people, you're going to bring, by definition, this is the point of it, you're going to bring some of them into your land and even into your house which is going to bring in some of their gods and some of their customs. And for a nation like Israel that is defined as being solely under the authority of one king, that's a no-go. It might turn your heart away, not many wives, and not much gold and silver. Wealth, obviously, a, a tool of power. Pride. He limits them. These are the things you cannot be about. Prohibitions. In other words... He says, this king can't be like any other kings. That's standard king fare. That's what kings do. They acquire power and they make political alliances and connections. And he says, you can't do any of that. It's a very odd king. People comment how if this had been like passed around amongst the, the kingdoms of the land, everybody would have laughed at it. <laughs> That's not a king. What are you talking about? <laughs> you can't be a king. You can't do these things that are kingly. But here's what you have to do, verses 18 and following. When he becomes king, what is he to do? And it's presented as if it's the very first thing he is to do. As soon as he sits on his throne, job one is to get out his own pencil and his own piece of paper and under the tutelage of the Levitical priests, 
write down in his own handwriting a copy of the law. Write down God's word. Have you ever done that sort of thing? In your own handwriting, write yourself a letter or a note. Use your own name. You come back to it later and, and it seems doubly powerful because it's your own handwriting. It's not printed. The king is supposed to write down God's word in his own handwriting and then keep it handy because he's to read it every day the rest of his life. What's going on there? The king is being placed under the word of God. Write down this law and then keep it. Not just so you know. This isn't for just information's sake. It's verse 19, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by obeying the law. He writes this down. He, he has it in his own handwriting right before him. And the goal is that he would learn this is what God is about. In fact, this is who God is. And what would happen in his heart from the regular reading of this word is his heart would be changed. Not only his behavior, it doesn't stop at that you will know how to obey the Lord. But that by obeying the Lord, your heart will be changed. Fear of the Lord will grow in you. Which, remember, in this book, in the Bible, fear of the Lord is not like a, a cringing sort of terror. It is reverent awe. As the king regularly reads over his own handwritten copy of the law, what will happen is not just to be informed about what God requires, but a sitting in him. He will find himself sitting beneath a majestic God, the king. It will change his heart, which will then lead to that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. A humbling will happen in this ruler. God's having the king write and then daily read this law so as to put him in his place. There is a power division here, but it is not king and people. It's God and people. And now, he surely is a king. So, but in the people, there is a power division. There, a king has authority. But in reading the law and growing in fear of the Lord, the thing that is going to strike him most clearly, day after day after day, is that I sit beneath this one. Just like you all. We are in this together. It's not me over you. That will happen as he encounters God in the Scripture. God is, is powerfully there curbing the tendency toward the lust for power. Restricting temptations towards power, no horses, the wives, the money, and then placing Him under the Word to grow in Him fear and to humble Him. The King will have authority among the people, but it is a derived authority. It is a subordinate authority. He is an under-shepherd. The Word stands over him and shapes his heart. And if he departs from it, he walks out of his authority and walks out of his blessing. The last verse.
and can expect to lose the kingdom. He is to remain beneath the king, the king. That's the text. God, through Moses, is establishing a good authority structure. And I have to emphasize good because I know that there are some of us who, as soon as we begin to talk about even the word comes out of my mouth, authority, cringe. At least inside, we shrink back from that. It's an authority structure, but it is a good authority structure. All God does is good. Always. He is good. It's grace on his people. All of creation needs authority. And God gives it here for his people. While also making clear a very radical concept. This is authority that is under authority. God's good rule then comes in this. What are we to make of it? Well, here's my, here's my summary sentence for this morning that I'm going to unpack in a couple of observations. So here's, I'll put it in a sentence. God appoints under-shepherds among his people, but still expects us to trust in him as the chief shepherd. God appoints under-shepherds among his people, but expects us to trust in him as the chief shepherd. I'm going to break that into two different parts and first talk about these under-shepherds. Here's the first observation, another sentence. God requires that his appointed authorities remain in submission to him. He is going to appoint authorities who themselves are under authority. In other words, who believe and live out the first table of the law, that there is no other God before him, particularly in this case, not me. That's going to be the temptation of any king, anybody who's in any position of authority or rule. The great temptation is that the one who is in charge is me. And he is specifically saying, no, you're not. I require that every appointed authority in my kingdom remain in submission to me. He does that among his people. You know, he appoints authority. Not kings anymore. We're not a political state. But he appoints people in authority. Gives them authority and responsibility to lead and to exercise oversight, even to rule. And I know as I say those words, again, those are words that make some of us cringe. I would point out they are directly out of New Testament passages. New Testament passages. Exercise oversight. Rule. That's the New Testament. He is our King. And thankfully and beautifully, He rules us today. And one of the ways He does that is through His appointed under-rulers. His appointed under Shepherds, And I'm using that word shepherd kind of interchangeably here because it comes from the Old Testament and was used to describe those in authority. Kings were called shepherds. Jot down 1 Chronicles 11 if you want. See the anointing of David as shepherd of Israel. And king and prince, all used in parallel there. Rulers and leaders and especially kings were called shepherds. And he appoints under-shepherds. It's in our passage, you know, the one that I choose, verse 15, but it's also in the New Testament. You could think of Jesus instructing Peter at the very end of John. What does he say to him? Feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Three times he says that. 
There's a flock. I'm appointing you to be the shepherd to take care of it, to feed it, to nurture it, to do good to it so that it prospers and flourishes. Shepherd it. You can think of Paul in Acts 20 speaking to the elders in Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock of God in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. God the Holy Spirit put elders in the church as overseers. Which is an obvious term of authority. If you think of 1 Peter chapter 5, I exhort the elders... Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. There it is again. The New Testament. I'm emphasizing that so that we have an understanding about what the people of God is like. Old and New Testament both. That it's not a free-for-all. It's It's not... A system in which we have everybody is all the same, identical, no authority. It's not that way. According to the Word of God, it's not. We have been set free from sin and slavery to sin. Not free from authority. We've actually just had our authorities transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son He loves. We just trade kingdoms. We're still ruled question is by whom and we in this kingdom now are ruled by god and he has appointed under shepherds to exercise oversight and have authority and if we don't understand that which is why i'm kind of emphasizing this here, if we don't understand that we're going to miss deuteronomy 17 because we're going to think it's only talking to a time when there was authority structure amongst the people of god that's not the case anymore in fact it still is the case it still has something to say to us By God's design, he has people as under-shepherds. But that's not the main thing that I'm working on here in this observation. Not just that there are people appointed as authorities, but that he requires them to remain submitted to him. That's, That's the point. When he sets up an authority, it is an under authority. And that's the thing he's he's underlining in this passage, is it not? Here's the king, and I want to be really careful to place him under. And to emphasize that to everybody who can read this, he is under the real king. If he's saying to him, yes, you are a king. Yes, you have authority, but you are not the source of authority. You are a conduit of authority. You're under me. And he seeks to do that. He seeks to express that in a couple of, there's two different ways, the prohibitions and the proscriptions. And you've got to think about these things. What he's saying here, don't picture them as like handcuffs that are, that are locking the, the king up, that are locking up the authority figure. I'm going to prohibit you and limit you from doing these things by a, a mean rule. Think of it instead as, as his channel that's trying to direct a stream. Trying to direct the heart of the ruler in a certain way. And what he does is he steers him away from temptation and towards that which will help him. He steers him away from the temptation that that is common to, in this case, kings, military, money, and political alliances. He steers him away from those things, lest your heart be turned aside. 
I'm concerned about your heart. And if you walk into these things, if you cozy up to them, you're going to be led astray. So don't go there. He turns them away. Cuts those temptations out of his life. But I think most clearly, and the one I want to emphasize is in 18 to 20, what he steers him towards is the Word of God. Clearly. With that exercise of writing it out and then reading it. And he so clearly... This is, I love how God leads His people. I love how He does this. He leads us through His Word into our heart. He is after your heart. He is not... He is not a God who is content to just say, if I can get the rules out there for you, and then you will follow them, we'll be great. It's not the case. And He knows that. And so He says, I'm going to lay out who I am and what I require so that you would learn to fear Me. Because as we look, and we've talked about this so many times, I'm repeating myself, I know. But as we look at His Word and see His law, what we see in it is God. You shall not bear false witness. What do we see in that? Well, I better not lie. We also see a God of truth. Every place you look, you see in in a commandment, in a a stipulation, in a law, you see in that God, in His character, His, His being. And that's what He's trying to communicate to us and to this King and to everyone in authority. I don't just want to tell you what to do. I want to tell you who. I'm telling you who I am, that you may learn to fear me. To to sit before me in reverent awe, with your jaw open. My, what a God He is! A king who is like that is no king to fear. A king who sits under God like that is a king to follow. Any authority who sits beneath God's Word, the authority, God communicating Himself through His Word to this person in authority, a person who sits under that and is transformed by it as his mind is renewed, is somebody you can follow. Someone who God has control of and who will bless the people. And God aims at that. He doesn't only content himself with setting up a system of checks and balances. Now, he he is doing that. If you notice, he's splitting this stuff apart from Moses, putting it in different people's camps, and there's a lot of wisdom to that. And there's a lot, incidentally, there's a lot of wisdom to how our United States government works in doing that. But we all know that doesn't work in the end because it can't get at the heart. He's not content to just divvy up the power. He places over this one in authority the item, the word, that can get at him and change him on the inside. Needs to fear him, and so he says, I'm going to create a place for you to encounter me and to drink me in daily that you may learn to fear me. And what happens then is that this guy is transformed and any authority who does that is transformed, he's changed, he's humbled that he might not lift himself up above his brothers. And he walks in God's ways. In other words, God 
passes through this human authority to the people. King reigns through the little k king. It's a beautiful thing. God, after the heart of this person, requiring, and to be really clear on it, you are beneath me and I want to help you with that, not just by telling you, but by putting you in a place where it will actually happen in your heart. Fear of me will grow. What do we do with that? That's what he's kind of set up there. What do we do with it? Well, I think there's a word here to all of us who are in authority within the people of God. And and there are different kinds of authority. There are elders, husbands, parents. And then beneath those kind of like official titles, all of us find ourselves in one place or another in some sort of leadership position over people. Where we have an influence upon them. We make decisions. I think this clearly says to us, in the position where you find yourself, and I'm going to use elders because I think it's the clearest parallel, shepherding terminology used for kings and used for elders both. You find yourself in a position as an elder, and there are two things that you need to keep in your mind. I have a responsibility. I have been appointed. I I am in a place where I am called to exercise authority. But be really clear on this. I am under authority. Not the authority unto unto myself. And that means, if if I'm going to... If I'm going to actually be convinced of that, okay, I intellectually know, but if I'm going to be convinced of that, how I get there is I go to the Scripture. I go to the Bible so that the fear of Him will grow in me and a humbling will grow in me as I read about Him and meet Him. There was a, an old saint who once said, this guy's a, a pastor from long ago, So the greatest thing that my people need, he was talking about his congregation, the greatest thing that my people need is my holiness. And he means that a little more broadly than what I'm talking about this morning, but it's along the same line, that the thing that anybody who is under needs of the one who is over is not their intelligence. It's not their their skill or their, their, their people skills. Not their connections, not their power, not their wealth. What they need is their holiness. What they need is that person to commune with God and to be transformed by Him. That the fear of the Lord growing in that one who is in authority. So I turn that around as one in authority, I think, what my people need is my holiness. You who are in authority in your families, in your, in your marriages, in, on your committees, Some even in workplaces, I think they can apply to that. What the people who you lead need is for you to walk with God, to pour His Scripture into your mind and to wash yourself with it, to be renewed by it, that the fear of Him would grow in you. So give yourself to it. I know you have to write out the whole thing in your own handwriting, but give yourself to it. Day by day. 
And I will also say, if you find yourself in a position where you are under in some way, pray that the person who is over will meet with God. So be really practical. You can pray for your elders. You can pray for husband or whoever. And pray, Lord, would you move into his heart and meet him in the scriptures? Would you give him or her or whoever it is, give that, give that person a desire to read your word and find you in it? Pray that for them. We need leadership, authority in the community of God that is not clever, that is not business-wise, but that is God-fearing and humble. It's a submissive authority that looks to Him for help and trusts in Him, realizing that I am under this one. It's God's word to the authority figure in Deuteronomy 17. I require you to remain in submission to me, hoping in me. And that leads us to the second observation. The second observation gets at how then we are to interact, we who are under are to interact with those who are in some way authorities. Another sentence here. We must submit to such shepherds while hoping in the one chief shepherd. We must submit to such shepherds while hoping in the one chief shepherd. Submission to this appointed human shepherd is, is only implied in the Deuteronomy passage. In calling him a king, is, there's an implication there. He's going to have authority. Subjects to kings, those are the proper terms. Subjects submit to kings. That's how it works. So it's implied, it's assumed there. And the New Testament says the same thing about God's appointed shepherds and authorities say. When 1 Timothy 5.17 talks about elders who rule, or Acts 20 or 1 Peter 5 talk about elders exercising oversight, the obvious implications that they should be submitted to. So we shouldn't be surprised when we read like Hebrews 13.17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. It really couldn't be much more clear. And I know as I say that, I hope I'm communicating this in my tone, that I'm not trying to be belligerent about this, but frankly, it's pretty clear. And I, I know, because I've had some conversations with, with other folks, I know that there are some people who chafe at that. I, I just want to point out, those are words used in context out of the letters from Paul, you know, out of Paul's mouth in Acts. Peter. That's the New Testament. Properly used. It's there. So... If that's if you're having some concern about that, it's it's not with me. I just want to be clear about that. I hope to not be belligerent about it, but I want to be clear. We are to obey those who are in authority over us in the church, in the New Testament church, just like wives are to submit to husbands in the Lord. It's also in Paul. It's like kids submit to parents. It's also in the New Testament. We follow God's appointed authority figures 
in the Lord. We don't follow them into sin. We follow them in the Lord. And a lot more could be said about that. We could define what submit means and could address all the feelings that are going on inside of us. But I'm not going to go down that path this morning because it's actually the opposite direction from where Deuteronomy points us. Deuteronomy is assuming that there are going to be people in authority, kings in this case, there are going to be people who submit to them. And the way that Deuteronomy is going is not submit. It's actually going the other way, recognizing that they're going to submit too much. You see, the assumption in the passage is they're going to say, give us a king, somebody that we can follow, somebody that we can submit to. We want somebody to rule over us. They're going to be going, not having the trouble with submitting. I, I just, we have a, we have a problem with that, but they're going the other way. They're too willing to submit to a human king. They have a first Samuel 8 problem that's coming up. He knows they want a king, or they will want a king. And the problem that's going to arise amongst the people is, thank God, now we have a human king, it's going to be okay. Which is totally wrong. If we could only get a king, if we could just get a guy with a strong army and some connections and some money, then it'd be okay. And it's not going to be okay. The problem that is going to arise right after this passage, it's going to arise in Israel, and it arises frequently in us today, is not that we, we see the king and we see the, the human king under him and we refuse to submit to him. The, the common problem that arises is that we don't see this king at all, and we trust in and hope in the human king. Oh, thank you for delivering us. You're charismatic and powerful and wealthy, and now we're safe. And that is false. They're going to throw out God to get Saul. Well, that didn't work. So they're going to throw out Saul to get David. David's a good king. Except when he's not. Murdering Uriah and costing Israel 70,000 lives from his presumption and causing a civil war. Failing to raise up his son Solomon properly. He's a great king, till he's not. He goes through decades of wandering away from God and spawns the permanent division of the people of God. And on and on. And the same is true for every God-appointed human leader you've ever known. Every parent, every husband, every elder, every pastor, every committee leader, every ministry director has slopped his or her sin and fallenness all over the shepherding work that God has appointed him or her to. Since day one, everybody you've known. Woe to us if we trust in human shepherds to deliver us. It won't happen. Every single human shepherd is made of clay, cracked and crumbling around the edges, and there is only one good chief shepherd. Only one. 
Only one ever lived perfectly humble, submitted to the word of God, never turning to the right or left. Only one had a perfect, wholehearted, loving, reverent awe, fear for God. Only one so loved his sheep that as a good shepherd he even came and laid down his life for them so as to fight for them and deliver them. Only one. And so he is the only one to be trusted and hoped in. Jesus, the single good chief shepherd. One to whom this text is pointing, Christ the King, the one King we most need. Which is not to say, covered this last week too, which is not to say that then we chuck out all human authority. No, he has established that human authority. We have to cut out pieces of the New Testament to get rid of it. We don't do that. But we watch very closely that our hearts not become riveted on the human authority. You don't need a new husband, a new parent, a new pastor, a new or better elder board. They probably don't exist, to be honest. What you need is a heart set on the King. A trust in Him particularly because He is the only one who actually can shepherd you through the greatest problem that you face. Your problem with sin. I mean, frankly, there are, there are other people who have abilities and powers and they can figure out your economic problems and they can figure out your relational problems and help you be, become more proficient at work and yada, yada, yada. But none of us can touch sin, which is your greatest problem. And that's the one that the chief shepherd came to deal with first and foremost. I know there are, a lot of, there are a lot of people in the world, probably some people in this room, who don't know this shepherd and don't have your sin problem dealt with. Which is actually the problem that's at the root of all your other problems. But you can have that problem dealt with. You need a king, not just, and he is this kind of king, Christ is this kind of king who is setting the world in order and will one day come back and set all of the world in order under his beautiful eternal reign. You need that kind of king, but what you most need is a king who will set this stuff in order. The heart. Who will straighten out the chaos in there that comes from the fact that your heart is divided and running after all kinds of other stuff that is not God and cannot save. It's running away from the king. The Bible calls that sin. That rejection of that king bears eternal consequences. You need a a king who is so remarkably gracious that even while you're running away from his reign, he's going to run around and get around in front of you so that you run to him, actually. So you find that you need that kind of a king who you'll bump into at the other end, gracious and willing to deal with your sin. He can catch you with the lightning bolt, but it's more remarkable when he catches you by circling around and being there before you. He'll do that. It's a confusing metaphor. Let me make that straight. What he will do 
is He will step into your life and save you from the folly of rejecting Him. He's that kind of shepherd. See Him like that and turn to Him. No human king can do that. No human ruler, no human authority can do anything remotely like that. But He can. He's a good shepherd. Turn to Him. But many of us who have, we need this kind of shepherd because you have and you will continue to experience all the failing of every human shepherd you bump into. Your wife with the husband who frankly isn't what he's supposed to be. Not, not just not what you'd like, who isn't what he's supposed to be. And you suffer for that. What do you do with that? Well, you can hope in him to change. You can throw him out and get a new one. Or you can fix your hope on the chief shepherd who just may intervene and change him. Maybe. You can pray and hope. But that's not what your hope is, that he'll change that. Your hope is that he will be a shepherd to you underneath of the messed up reign of this little shepherd who frankly is acting more like a hired hand and consuming the sheep for his own pleasure. You fix your heart on the high shepherd, on the great king, and hope in his reign that extends over everything in the world. He holds it all in his hands. He's multi-capable. Omni-capable, perhaps I should say. You hope in a shepherd. You need to hope in a shepherd who will bring His will to pass, which is always good. Particularly when you're looking at shepherds who are trying to bring their will to pass, and it isn't good. Now, I'm not saying that you never take any action. I mean, if you've got, a, if you've got a, an authority figure who can rightly be removed and should be, I'm not touching on all of that. I'm just saying that's going to happen and your hope can't be in, well, if we get this all straightened out on the human vertical plane down here, everything's going to be, the horizontal plane, everything's going to be great. You, you can't think like that because it's not true. Act, but hope in this one. He sets up a king not to give his people a different place to hope. He still intends that as this king sits beneath him that, and, and responds to him and, and obeys him to live out this king's reign here on the earth, that the people who are, are down here underneath this king would look through him at the great king above and, and fix their hopes on him. We submit to them, but we hope in the great good shepherd. He appoints under-shepherds among the people of God, but expects us still to cast all of our hope on Him. So He exercises authority among His people. So trust Him. Let me pray. Father, I pray that You would, in our minds and hearts, give order to my words there. 
These words of the last few minutes, Lord, I pray that you would cause them to fall out and, and make sense. Just put that in front of you, Lord, and acknowledge that I am weak and made of clay. And so I ask you as the shepherd, the king, the authority, I ask you to stretch your staff over your people and guide them and steer them towards your blessing and and pull them away from danger. Lead them to water and food and, and nourish them. Thank you for your word that does that. And I pray make it clear to us. Make it clear as we ponder it and discuss it amongst ourselves and turn it over in our minds. Thank you for authority structure within your body. It is a blessing to us. And thank you that you have not abdicated the throne and that you still reign. That is a greater blessing and comfort to us still. So I pray, Lord, you'd help us to enjoy you and rest in you to know you as a good, kind, and gracious king. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.